Away we go then in the women's singles girls gold medal race at Rio 2016. Switzerland, the United States, Australia, China, New Zealand and Austria. And coming up to 700 now. Jevi Stone going well there. Fighting it out with Duan Jing Lee. Holding those second and third spots at the moment. Through the midway point in this race ahead. 3.72 ahead of Jevi Stone and then Duan. Jevy Stone going really well in lane two. Yeah, and that tailwind looks like it's just turned to a bit of a side. Not helping these scholars to stay balanced in their boat. Shaking the rhythm a little bit. So that might become a factor as they start trying to drive through this last 500 metres. It is still Kim Brennan, Jevy Stone of the United States and Duan of China. Well in contention as well. In fact, it's Duan gaining now on Jevy Stone. Jevy Stone, Duan Jingli, both strong scholars, both have a strong finish. And Jevy Stone starting to push back a little bit on Kim Brennan. But here comes Jevy Stone over there in lane two for the United States. Kim Brennan still with the advantage. It's going to take the gold here for Australia. It's going to be Kim Brennan and then Jevy Stone and Duane for the bronze. Emma Twig out of the medals. It is Australia one, United States two, China three. Hello, ladies and gents, and welcome to another awesome episode of the Rose Show. Um, as always, it's myself, Lawrence Britton, and with me. Yeah, this is Jake Green, guys, and today we are really excited to tell you we are we chatted to Geneva Stone from the USA, and this one is really interesting because never before have we spoken to someone that was training in medicine while pursuing a league career in rowing. So this is unique in that in terms of someone's workload, it's ridiculous how uh, Geneva managed to uh, balance the training with uh, the full-time medical practice and uh, it really shows like on results um, you know how well she managed to get it and I mean Lawrence that silver medal in Rio was absolutely incredible yeah and it's such a cool race and, and such a cool end to her story or not really the end but a, a, a highlight of her of her journey and you know it was really awesome I remember being in Rio and preparing for the racing, I'm not sure exactly when, but I remember having one of the one of, uh, like a lunch or a dinner and and chatting to her and her dad because her dad is is her coach. He's coached her all through her professional rowing career, so it's been uh, it's that's I think it's been really special for her. And yeah, it was awesome to chat to her before her her race and to kind of feed off. So I've been looking forward this uh, to this chat for for ages. So really, really awesome and oh, so much wisdom and and knowledge coming from her. You know. Uh, she had some difficult times and she was always a little bit more focused on her studies and uh, becoming a doctor. But I think, you know, that rowing bug just kind of bit in and, and gnawed away. And, and she really thought she was done after London, you know, making it to the games. And then I think she she kind of thought maybe she can do one one step better. And then committing to Rio and coming away with the, the silver medal must, uh, I think it's just so epic. And uh, she really shared and really dug into to that part of her, her journey and her story. So such a, a special chat and, and really, really awesome to, to hear her talk about that journey. Yes, of course. And we also got to chat a bit about which, what she's been up to in 2019, her comeback, and then, you know, the, the, the plan for going forward towards Tokyo. But, you know, we don't want to give too much away. Um, so... We'll leave it uh, at that for Ginevra. But also, guys, uh, just for housekeeping, thanks so much for your support. 
um, engaging with us on social media was always we we love uh, listening from you guys and, and and chatting with you guys. Please go follow us on Instagram. Let someone know about the the Row Show, and you can also go support us on PayPal. Yeah, it's December time, and hopefully you guys might not be flying anywhere, but hopefully you're traveling. Uh, somewhere just to get away and this is the the kind of perfect thing to listen to on your road trip so yeah tell someone about it uh, share it listen to it with the, the people that you're driving with or traveling with and yeah let us know what you think of this episode let us know what you think of the last few episodes we've had some really bangers lately i think they've been incredible episodes and we have mm-hmm. one more coming up after this one for for 2020 so we're going to end off 2020 with a bang. So yeah, keep your eyes and ears open for that one. But for now, I think let's get into the show and just enjoy. Enjoy, guys. Welcome to The Rose Show. We're your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jake Green. And in this podcast, we're going to go into everything related to sport and performance. And we're also going to talk a little bit about rowing. South Africa. It brings people together, it breaks down barriers. My passion winning to be the best. The best is something we strive for. There's a role in South Africa. Passion. Great. Passion. Fiction. Ultimate goal. Glory. Relentless training. Pain. Pain. (laughs) Hello, ladies and gents. And today we are back with another awesome interview. And we are really lucky to be talking to Ginevra Stone from the USA. Ginevra, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, it's, it's awesome and uh, it's good to finally be, be chatting. And I think to, to kick things off, um, it's, good, it's really interesting when I was doing my research and, and learning a bit about your career and whatnot, you studied medicine and when I, when I saw that, I was seriously impressed because, you know, the rigors of the rowing training and then you put that on top of it, one of the hardest uh, degrees to get it, to do out there, it's really impressive. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, beginning the sport and trying to balance it with medicine and how did that um, s- how did that start and how did that eventually d- lead into the structure of the training that you um, developed to go to the Olympics in? Yeah, so it's not a really short story. I thought I wanted to be a doctor starting in eighth grade. I saw an orthopedist who looked at my knee and I walked out of clinic and said, that's what I want to do when I grow up. And so I went to college as a pre-med and a recruited rower. And in college, nothing's totally abnormal in the U.S. about doing both at the same time. So no one ever kind of gave it a second thought, really, in terms of being too challenging. It wasn't easy, but it was definitely doable. And then... When I graduated, I was looking towards Beijing and looking towards applying to medical school. So I had a year off before starting and a year to row to try out for the Beijing team. And I thought that those things would happen separately. I kind of thought that I'd be done rowing after 2008 and would start medical school. But I, fortunately, with the encouragement of my parents realize that I do better as a student athlete than I do as just a student or as just an athlete because I do think that the exercise helps me get out my extra energy and makes me better about time management and I balance the two against one another in terms of not putting too much pressure on myself on any one activity because I have 
the both. So if something doesn't go well in rowing, I could work harder at school. And if something didn't go well at school, I could work harder at rowing. And so in the fall of 2008, I wasn't sure how seriously I was going to keep training. I actually came home after not making Beijing and told my parents, I've had a great rowing career. I'm not fast enough to be an Olympian. And that's okay. Like I did well in college. I did well at the 23 level. And I'm okay putting elite rowing behind me. And I'm going to medical school in the fall. Like, that's a whole new chapter. But as I said, I do better as a student athlete. And I was encouraged to row on the side with school. And it worked out better. And no one ever said, you can't do that. That's impossible. Everyone was supportive and maybe thought I was a little bit crazy. But I was really fortunate to have my parents and my friends and the medical school all encouraging the double activities. And I did that for two years until I realized that it really would take more serious training to achieve the goal of going to the Olympics again. And in medical school in the U.S., there is a pretty natural break between second and third year. And so I took a leave of absence from school with amazingly the support of Tufts and decided to train full time for two years leading up to London. So in summary, I think it's, I'm lucky that no one said you can't. Everyone always was maybe thinking I was a little crazy in the back of their minds, but the network I had around me was very supportive. And so I never thought it was weird to take being a student athlete in high school to being a student athlete in college and then continuing that on to a little bit more of an extreme level in medical school. Granted, my social life did go out the window a lot more <laughs> when I did both in medical school. So, so then what is like a, a typical day, like especially when you were, when you were really heavy into studying and, and how did you balance it and, and what did a, a typical day look like for you? And I mean, that must have not given you much free time outside of uh, the two. <laughs> no, not a lot of free time and my weekends were spent pretty seriously studying to make up for the hours that I was rowing during the week. But medical school, the first two years is structured a bit like high school, more than university here, in that you go to class from eight to four, and then the rest of the day is yours to study. And I would leave class at four and head to the river. And I was really efficient about between crossing the threshold, entering the boathouse and leaving the boathouse, it was no more than two hours. So there's a little bit more intensity in the workouts and not a lot of stretching or warm up or warm down. <laughs> but in order to get the work in, I had to be very efficient about it. And fortunately in college, we actually had a similar structure in that 4.30 to 7 was a protected time for athletes to have practice. And our college coach, because of that two and a half hour constraint, was very efficient with our time on the water. So he was able to take a bunch of the practices that we did at Princeton and then carry them over and adapt them for the single when I started in med school. Um, so the first two years were the easier ones. It was later on when after London, when I did my third and fourth year of medical school, and then after Rio, when I did my first year of residency, that things became more complicated. And there were weeks when the most I got was like a 15 minute body circuit at the beginning of the day. And in medical school, there were, or in residency, there was a stretch when I was on labor and delivery, which was overnight, every night, 14-hour shifts. And I think I worked out 90 minutes total for the two weeks that I was on labor and delivery. So 
the equivalent of one normal practice, and yet it's all I get for the entire week. Yeah, it is. It's actually incredible just to listen. And I, I think for me, the takeaway is, you know, and obviously in ideal situations and these huge teams that everything is structured, but often when we speak to athletes, a lot of the times, I mean, Kim Brennan was one of them, you know, you have to make plans around other th- spheres of your life. And it's amazing to, to listen to the stories and how these things can actually work, because obviously it's not the ideal scenario for the rowing, but you can make it work. And, and you know, as long as the commitment and the, the dedication is there, you can actually, there's a lot that you can actually get done um, provided you have the necessary skills with time management and organizing to get fit everything in. But it is incredible how, you know, the body can actually adapt to to fit your schedule. Mm. Yeah, it is. And of course, the single is an important part of that because I was working around only my own schedule. And so if we got out of class half an hour early, I could practice half an hour earlier. Or if we got out of class half an hour late, no one was waiting for me at the boathouse. And having the flexibility to train when it fit into my schedule, because I was the only one in my boat, really did play a huge role in that. And medicine is the reason I ended up in the single. I came to Boston to go to medical school, and there was no one to row with. And so I ended up in the single, because when there's no one to row with, that's the only boat that's the option. So actually, it's something I want to ask is because like most people that we chat to, they kind of uh, they either choose to row in the single because that's the kind of person that they are in the, the boat class that they enjoy or they're like a bit nervous of the single and, and they don't really want to want to go and uh, and try and compete in it so and you have kind of forced to to row in the single so was it something that you really enjoyed or, or, or always or did you kind of have to grow to to enjoy it because it was the the choice you were given I absolutely grew to love it I if you look at my under 23 bio, which I don't know, for a long time, U.S. Rowing had it on the website because they didn't change them. And it says my favorite thing about rowing is the teammates. And that absolutely was true. Like when I started rowing in high school, it was the culture of the team and the fact that everyone's working at 100% at the same time, even in practice, that got me to love the sport and really drew me in. And in college, again, it was the team that made it, I mean, I would say worthwhile, but more than that, the team made it the experience that it was and then in Beijing I was trying out for the quad and I always thought that I would end up going back to Princeton to go to the camp again when I started medical school and continued training Michelle Gret won silver in Beijing and I don't know if I thought she would continue because she had made it relatively clear that she'd retire but we know that athletes aren't always Mm. 100% when they say they're going to retire myself being one of yeah. them uh, and I so I yeah I never really even considered the single I thought that the single was a vehicle to getting back into the selection for the double or the quad and in 2010 when I was finishing up that second year of medical school I won the speed order and that was a shock that I was not expecting myself to win. I was racing against the girls at the training center. I was coming off studying and exams and was actually in the middle of school still and all of a sudden earned the right to go to Lucerne and represent the U.S. at the World Cup. And it was really only that that kept me in Boston to train in the single. The fact that I won and had the opportunity, I said, oh, well, if I can keep doing what I'm doing, 
then maybe this will work out and I can keep my hand in medicine as well as training and do a little bit of research on the side. And this might actually allow me a better balance between the two. Um, so I tried the single the first year in 2010 and Lucerne went well. And then I lost trials, didn't get to go to New Zealand for the world champs. And all of a sudden was like, no, no, I want to go back to the camp. I want to be in that double. I want to be in that quad. After discussions with Tom Terhar, it was clear the single was a better place for me. And yeah, I can't say I loved it. The whole I went to the camp for the double in 2011 and finished second at double trials with Megan Calmo, and but had won single trials earlier, and so got to be in a single. So it probably wasn't until the af- gosh, it probably wasn't until the Olympic year in 2012 that I really began to think the single was where I wanted to be as opposed to where I was ending up. Not to say I didn't enjoy parts of it. I had a great team of masters guys that I got to race with and practice and they made the experience so much better. So I was able to bring some of the teamwork from the big boats into with the help of my dad, who's coach dad, who's organized it all. But we brought the teamwork from the big boats into practices in the small boats because I guess I found over the years that the teamwork is a critical part of rowing and it doesn't matter if you're in an eight and working in the same boat or whether you're in singles and working side by side. But if you have that camaraderie and peer pressure and everyone's working as hard as they can at the same time, you can get just as much out of side by side work in the singles as you can being direct, like behind yeah. one another in a bigger boat. Yeah. Definitely. So, I mean, you touched on it earlier, but I, I wanted to get into it a bit more. Um, so for you, obviously, the it's it's interesting because in a lot of teams around the world, you have a centralized training program, and then the selection for boats will be it's like happens internally, and then that kind of boat gets mm-hmm. selected to go to to um, world champs. But it, you know, it happens as part of the team. Whereas for you, it's really interesting because it's a way more personal endeavor where you go into the single skulls, and then you have to go to national trials and actually win national trials, get selected in the boat to go to world champs. So talk to us a bit about that process. It must be incredibly rewarding, you know, training in Boston, you know, you've, you've got your father, you've got, this is quite a, you know, it's quite a personal, um, you know, you're not part of like a giant team, a centralized program. It's a personal endeavor. You're making sacrifices, you're balancing with medicine. It must be incredibly rewarding going to national trials and racing against other people from around the country, earning your right to race the single and represent the USA at the World Champs and then going on to World Champs and competing. That process must be firstly incredibly difficult, but it must be really rewarding just getting, you know, getting the selection, um, the selection go ahead. Yeah, I think you're absolutely hit the nail on the head in that it has its pros and its cons. It feels like you are legitimately the single when you win trials because you did win trials. On the other hand, it's one moment in time. And if you get sick, even if it's something as temporary as like a GI bug or strep throat, and fortunately I haven't been in a situation, but you could have a bad week and there goes trials. So you could be the fastest in the world. You could be the world champ, I don't know, three years heading into Olympic trials. And if you have a bad week, the week of trials, that stinks to be you because someone else might beat you and take your spot. So on the one hand, it's great because when you win, you do feel like you deserved it. On the other hand, it's tough because it puts a lot of pressure on that one event, which but really is a snippet in terms of a moment in time and training. But that's also how 
our even our international season works yeah. as well. That's how the Olympics work. So maybe it's kind of <laughs> kind of double edged sword there because if you it's can get it right true. on that day, then hopefully you can. Well, then it's your chances and maybe you've practiced getting it right on the on the on the big day as well. Yeah, and it, I mean that's if you think about other sports in terms of track and field and swimming and other sports that are measured by time at least in the US those are all done by a trial system as well and so it term it's consistent across the board in terms of sports and so for us it's the single the pair and the double are all trials events and then the bigger boats are selected by a coach at the camp yeah i mean it, it is a very interesting process and then uh, you've spoken a bit about your your parents and then in my research i found it really interesting cuz your parents very much felt to me like they they saw your potential as an athlete, as a rower, and both of them are elite athletes. Your mom went to the Olympics in 76, and your dad, unfortunately, missed out on going in 1980 because of the boycott. But it, it kind of felt like your parents could see the potential in you as a rower um, at times where you maybe didn't see yourself um, as, you know, as, a, as an Olympian or as a silver medalist. And, you know, it, it seemed like they really encouraged you to, you know, get get into um, the, the lead side of the sport and almost mentored you to kind of become the, the athlete that raced at Rio. Talk to us a bit about like, what was it like um, having your parents behind you and then also talking about you know, co- you know, having your dad as your coach because I'm sure that must be amazing and terrible at times. Um, but it, it just talk to us a bit about the process. I'm fascinated by it. Uh, you're right, and that I'm absolutely lucky to have the parents I do. Uh, I grew up around rowing. Head of the Charles was a holiday on par with Christmas in our family because all the friends came into town, and even one family friend always gave us presents every year. It was a big celebration. And while my parents always saw my potential, and I think even starting at a young age, I mean, I was lanky and I had no hand-eye coordination, so none of the ball sports were working out for me. They let me choose my own path and never pointed me in the direction of rowing. I went to a school where rowing was an option, and I played soccer and lacrosse my freshman year, and it wasn't until I realized I was terrible at soccer my freshman year that I said, oh, well, I guess I'll row my sophomore fall, but I'm still gonna play lacrosse in the spring because like lacrosse is my real sport. And then I didn't make varsity lacrosse and said, oh, well, I guess I'm rowing junior year. And they, I think the fact that they let me make that decision on my own let me fall in love with the sport on my own terms as opposed to being pushed into it because it was my choice and it was something that I wanted to do. And I think that independence led me in the right direction in terms of beginning the sport. Uh, my mom was actually my coach in high school. She coached my high school team. So I had an early introduction into the parent coaching role. And I think that helped me later on with my dad because there was a series of practices in high school when I was just a brat to my mom on the car ride home every day. My boat wasn't doing well. They were supposed to be mixed boats and even boats. And I was furious every practice saying, well, what can I do? Why is my boat winning? Tell me. You've been giving me any technical pointers. And I just, just incredible frustration. And she finally turned to me about after a week of this and said, you need to find your own ride home. And at the boathouse, I'll be your coach. And at home, I'll be your mom. But we need some separation between the two. <laughs> so I carpooled with a teammate. And it really <clears throat> did help because I was able to uh, separate a little bit those two roles between 
that's not to say that I wasn't the perfect athlete. She was still a little bit my mom at the boathouse, and I was the one who would raise my hand in protest if I thought it was too cold or too wet to row or didn't want to erg or whatever it was. I was definitely probably more of a complainer than I should have been. But it helped me to separate the two in my mind. So my mom was my coach in high school. And then when I came to Boston, my dad actually began as my training partner in that fall. He would, every weekend, we would go out and do practices together. And he would beat me consistently in that fall of 2008. And then I distinctly remember the last practice we did that fall. It was a cold day in November. But beautiful water upstream. So we were rowing where it's narrower and windier. And we were doing two-minute pieces. And I beat him on one. And it was just this moment of... I mean, joy, but satisfaction. And of course, I want my dad to do well, but this person who I know is fast and I've looked up to my whole life, all of a sudden, I know that I'm gaining speed when I, when I got him on a piece. So he slowly transitioned from being one who trained with me, although he still comes out for our longer pieces, which are time trial style in the single, not the launch. Um, but transitioned more from a training partner to occasionally coming to the launch and before even he did that, we would I would go home once a week and we would sit down and make up training plans. So I would say, this is what we did in college. I think this would be helpful. And it was really a mutual process. And gradually over the years, it's transitioned into a more distinct role of coach and athlete in terms of now pointers and takes video. And we have an Excel spreadsheet. We've really gotten much more modern in our coaching manners. But... I do think that one of the reasons it's special is that he does still trust my opinion. He knows I've been doing this for a while. And if I say that something's sore, he trusts me to cross train, trusts me to cross train. Or if the weather is terrible and I say, Oh, the weather's terrible Tuesday and Wednesday's practice is Tuesday's practice is more important. Can we switch Tuesday and Wednesday? He really does take my opinion into consideration. Although he is the ultimate say in terms of what ends up happening. Um, so yeah, I'm lucky and I'm lucky also in that he has come into this role of coach relatively late in life. I mean, he's not a professional coach by any means. I pay him in my love and gratitude and unfortunately that's all he gets. So (laughs) although there's plenty of that, I hope, but, uh, he, um, is always willing to learn. And when we go to international regattas, he's pestering all the other coaches saying well what about this and what about that and willing to adapt our training plan and this and he's flexible because he's always looking for ways to improve so there's a few uh, things that we're gonna have to dig in there because there were were some really interesting points so your dad wasn't actually like he wasn't another team's coach and then started coaching you he kind of just transitioned Mm -hmm. from your training partner to your coach which is actually unbelievable that's really really cool and it must have built such a strong dynamic between the two of you having this like learning process of both of you over such a long period of time which is that must have just been really really cool to have that develop over over so many years i shouldn't say he had coached one year after he graduated from college he was the freshman lightweight coach at harvard for one year and then he went to law school and then he had been coaching an assistant, co- an assistant to the assistant coach at Belmont Hill, which is a local high school. So he had done a little bit of coaching, but nothing at yes. the elite level. So it has been a learning trip for both of us. 
And then the other thing I just wanted to, that re, that you that you spoke about there is the is the flexibility, and I think the flexibility is is actually so amazing because so many systems are you know like this big team head coach, uh, you know assistant coaches, and they're always trying to bring in flexibility. Like we spoke to uh, when we speak to guys from the Norwegian team, they do a lot of like okay, this day is like a personalized training day for this athlete, and they they try and bring in a lot, but no one really has the scope to literally be able to chop and change stuff depending on the weather, on the athlete, on the coach, on the time. And as you say, like you were having classes, if your class finished a bit early, you could go in and get out to the water. So the flexibility of your training program must have been awesome. But also like, how did you make sure that you still hit the, the right... And stayed honest. Uh, yeah, and stayed honest about the, the numbers um, going with such flexibility. Ooh. Yeah, I've gotten better at it, I would say, through the years. There was a period of time, I mean, we did always have a schedule written out, and once I got to the boathouse, it was all my self-accountability, and my dad would come out. He's always come out for two or three practices a week, the harder practices, and the other ones have all been on my own. My dad always trusted me to want to do the workouts, and the rest was up to me to get down to the boathouse and do it on my own and do it to the best of my ability. And I think that trust has been a crucial part of our relationship and also one of the reasons that I have been successful in that it is an intrinsic desire to want to keep getting faster, that I just am constantly motivated to find more speed and to improve. And I want to do the training plan. Granted, there have certainly been days and chunks of time there was a chunk of time the winter of 2011 when I had gone through a bad breakup and I did not want to get out of bed and I definitely missed a few practices and no one knew until after the Olympics like eight months later when I confessed to my dad that I had missed probably 10 practices in a period of two weeks Um, and he was shocked to say the least (laughs) but matured since then fortunately and now know that if I'm having a rough day I can tell him you know things aren't going well or um, I'm feeling a little bit of a ache or pain here and sometimes he sides with me and sometimes he says stop being lazy and get down to the boathouse and sometimes that's push that I need so I think communication is critical to the flexibility and also that trust in that desire to want to do things at hundred percent all the time yeah um, um of course having numbers helps too like i've kept track of the number of minutes i spent on the water and the times certain workouts and workout logs dating back to 2007 so having data and numbers does force you to stay honest a lot of the time yeah definitely um and um just to to you you were talking about how you know it was actually really close to london and that 2012 year where you know, you kind of saw yourself as uh, a single scholar and you, you kind of started visualizing that path going forward. I wanted to focus in a bit about on the, the late qualification regatta in London and just to listen to your thoughts. You know, on the on the one part, obviously, you know, I, Lawrence and I have both been to late qualification. That is a terrible regatta to go to. There's so much on the line and it's, it's brutal because, you know, you know, people are going to, are racing there to be at Olympic Games. Most people are going home with their dreams crushed. And the one part is obviously you going there and uh, you making it, you making your your uh, Olympic qualification. 
But on the other side, the people you raced against to get to that late qualification was insane. You had Kim Brennan, Fee Upi Eriksson, and uh, Sunita Pespure uh, to race against yeah. to get into the single. So racing against that competition must have also been amazing because it, it was almost a warm-up in the women's single skulls for London. So talk to us a bit about that experience. Yeah, no, I confess. So I listened to your interviews with Sunita and Emma and Kimmy, and I do think it's funny that pretty much everyone you've interviewed on the women's sculling side of things has been through the qualification regatta. So it says something about, I don't know, I don't know, it makes us crazy or motivated or just speaks to the depth of that regatta, uh, the regatta of death as it is occasionally referred to. Uh, I was fortunate in that I was young in my elite rowing career when I went I think if I had realized the depth of the field with more maturity I would have been a lot more scared as it was they did increase the number of spots about a week or two before the regatta from three to four and that seemed like a miracle it just when you're training for top three and you find out that you get four you just can breathe a little bit easier (laughs) knowing that there's one more going. And I knew because I was young to the sport that I actually was, or not to the sport, but to the elite racing in the single, I gained so much from every regatta and from every month of training at that point in my career. I had stopped school in the spring of 2010, so I'd had almost two years of training full-time. And when it's that condensed, I think that there's more pressure but also um more ability to have a learning steep learning curve and i think that i went into the regatta knowing that i was faster than i had been when i raced at worlds in 2011 which is a nice way to approach a regatta knowing that you've gained speed that being said i had no idea what to expect from Kimmy or Fee, and they obviously destroyed me um, at that regatta. But my goal was to make the Olympics in 2012, and doing that and coming in top four, I mean, was incredible. That mm. was definitely a dream come true, and racing was about proving that I'd gotten faster. And yeah, between the qualification regatta and then going to London, it was really about achieving a life goal of racing at the Olympics and the yeah complete joy of that experience. Yeah, I mean, it really is. I mean, on my personal experience, we uh, we competed, I was in a heavyweight men's four and we also competed in 2016 at the latest qualification. And just the, you know, the gratification and the, you know, the just confirming the dream and the, the the training and everything you've you've been doing and the sacrifice and you actually now have got a spot to go to the the biggest competition in the world that is it was one of the the best feelings you know of my life and i'm sure it must have been one of the best feelings of your life and then moving on to the olympics yeah, it's amazing after like not placing top nine at the world championships and even though in your head like according to the math technically the people the final qualification are gotta although this does not play out, should be spots 10 through 13 or whatever. It does not feel like no, that. When you qualify never. the qualification regatta, you feel like you've won the world championships. <laughs> never. But also, actually, talking about the late qualification regatta often, um, if you look at the people that win the late qualification regatta in all the events, 
oftentimes those people go on to place in the in you know in the a finals and the medal positions at uh, the Olympics, and I think it's because you know things can go wrong in the you know in the the qualification year. You can have a bad season, someone could get sick, uh, you're not racing in the right event, you change events. So oftentimes the people racing at late qualifications are actually flipping really really fast, and they go yeah. on to to yeah. flip and cause a, a huge. I also upset. think it's like a it's a momentum thing as well because yeah. now you like. Your year is yeah. completely focused on final qualification. You cannot see past yep. final qualification, and it's all about making it through that regatta. And I think when it happens, it's just like, oh my word, like this is, it's real. It's like it's happening. And now we're going to the Olympics. So, like, you just get like a, you've already done all your like super prep, and now mm. you've just got this final little kick to the game. So, I think it's uh, the, the crews that make yeah. it through there are very dangerous always. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and then moving on to London, uh, if you look at obviously you, you got your silver medal in Rio, and you know for this stage of your career, your expectations of of what you expect from performances and your goals have changed. But it seems that your you winning the B final in London that must have been an incredible result for you at the time, considering everything how your your journey had progressed. So I mean, what was your you know, what was it like winning that B final and how did that change your mindset going forward into Rio? Like, did it change your expectations on what you were going to do before the Olympics to compare to afterwards? And like, did it give you some sort of like confirmation on, you know, what you can actually achieve in the sport? Yeah. So, I mean, London, the crowds were always chanting during the warm up, cool down practice days like GB, GB, and it sounds a lot like Jebby. And if they're shouting it fast enough, they're like, oh, this is so fun. They're cheering for me. All of them are cheering for me. Um, and there wasn't a GB single, and the women's, there wasn't a women's single um, racing for GB. So I think the crowd was dispersed in terms of who they were cheering for in that one event, which makes it fun. And also just the enthusiasm. I mean, they, they stayed to watch the practice after racing. And I think like half of the crowd missed the last bus to the train station because they didn't know that the buses stopped an hour after racing and they stayed four hours after racing just to watch people practice. So I think that enthusiasm set the tone for the whole regatta in a way. And for me, it wasn't a perfect regatta. I went in with the highest place I'd finished internationally was a seventh um, at a World Cup. And thinking, you know, it would be great if I could make that A final, if I could just crack that bar into the top six. And that was a high goal for me at the time. But I thought that maybe I could do it. And then, as you know, conditions in London were not perfect. Um, I remember being on the semifinal line and, like, sculling my boat around constantly to stay straight in the lane. And looking across the course, and on the other side, they're not even tapping their boat at all because there's no wind. And they're totally protected and they're just sitting in their boat, staying straight in their lane. So things didn't work out perfectly. That being said, there was a pretty clear division between 6th and 7th at that time. 7th had been the highest I had placed, but I also hadn't raced. It was a World Cup, so it wasn't a full field. And I obviously wasn't even close. I was 11th at the World Championships in 2011. And so that B final, not only did I win it, which I've got to say winning a B final has got to be more fun than placing sixth in an A final. Mm. I've never placed sixth in an A final, so I'm not sure I can say that with full accountability. 
but you get to cross the line first, which is really exciting. And I beat people that I had never beaten before. So I had raced Donata, um, the Lithuanian, had placed one or two places ahead of me every single regatta of my career up to that point. And she placed one behind me at London. And so beating Donata, even though she's a close friend of mine, definitely was a huge moment of pride. And then uh, beating Lavina, the Russian as well, were two people I had raced over and over again. And Lavina actually hit me in the warm-up zone in my first international regatta in Lucerne in 2010. And so to this day, I resent the fact that she rammed her boat into me in the warm-up zone <laughs> and beating her in London was felt like payback finally. Um, but I think she, I honestly think she was trying to scare the newbie. Just like, oh, let's rattle her a little bit. Like, let's bump her boat. And it really did rattle me. Um, <laughs> But anyway, I, yeah, placing, winning that B final, I think the chance to cross the line first and to have gone faster than I'd ever gone in terms of the spots away from the podium, but also the people I was racing it. And I thought that was it. I was like, oh, that's my Olympic career. I'm faster than I've ever been. I've achieved my goal of becoming an Olympian. Like, this is great. I'm going back to med school. And I did. I started med school again two weeks later. And unbeknownst to me, my dad had a bunch of conversations with coaches in London. And it was Spracklin and who else? Tady and a bunch of notable coaches who said, you know, Jenny's coming along. Like she could be on the podium in Rio. Mm. And it wasn't until a few months into the fall that he said, you know, I was talking to a bunch of coaches and I think you should consider continuing to train because you could be on the podium in Rio. And I remember thinking, you have got to be out of your mind. I thought I wasn't fast enough to the Olympian. I finally made it to the Olympics. I had the best race of my life up to this point. And now you're telling me that I can be on the podium? Like, there's no way in the podium, Rio. You are crazy. Nice thought. But it did really set something off in the back of my mind that was a persistent itch from there forward. And I was just this constant little thing back there nagging at me. Like, well, what if he's right? Like, what if those coaches are right? What if I could be on the podium in Rio. It seemed, it really seemed an impossibility at the time in 2012. I was like, no way, I'm not even close. But the thought that these coaches who knew what they were talking about had proposed it really did light that spark. And so despite thinking that I was done rowing, I went to my deans after another year of medicine and said, yeah, you know, I told you it was a once in a lifetime opportunity turns out it might be a twice in a lifetime opportunity and can we work this out so that I can take another leave of absence yeah sure. um we want to we want to chat a bit about um the head of the Charles because you are an absolute oh. beast at the head of the Charles with 10 10 wins <laughs> if I'm correct in the the women's single which is really really impressive and I know that's that's home ground for you and you know, it must be it must be a really special event for you, and it's it's the it's a huge event. It's the biggest event in the world, hey? Yeah, the I think it's event. the biggest rowing regatta in the world. Yeah, and yeah, you are. I there. actually think it's the biggest regatta in the world, like yeah. sailing and canoe kayak. Oh yeah, oh, sure. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure because those are just just tiny tooting their sports. horns because yeah. you know, yeah. they're friends of mine. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, chat to us, uh, us about the head of the Charles. Like, has it? I mean, it, it seems like you raced it at school, so it's always been a, a big thing for you. And talk to us about like, how do you, you know, 
how do you structure it with the, 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 the racing season? It must be nice racing against international competition, especially when the stakes are not quite as high. You can kind of let, you know, you can kind of drop your guard a bit after the competition and have a bit more of a, a friendly atmosphere with, you know, some of your competitors. You know, talk to us a bit about the event and like what, what it means to you. Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, it's been a holiday for me since I can remember. So since I started to walk and talk. And as the years have progressed, it's not been about seeing my parents' friends, although it's wonderful to see them too, but about seeing my own friends as I became a rower. And I started racing in high school and then raced at Princeton as well. And gosh, yeah, it's, I mean, one of my favorite weekends of the year. And I really hold a special place in my heart in that it's also the reason I kept rowing at the elite level. I went to med school, as I said, in the fall of 2008, and had entered head of the Charles after racing a slew of much smaller regattas around here. I mean, the head of the Housatonic and the Green Mountain Head and things you've probably never heard of, small local regattas. that are also roughly three miles. And was racing against, like, college novices and people about that level and crushing everyone, which didn't really say anything about my speed and a lot of competition in the field was really small but it was still really fun to win by a lot and when I raced head of the Charles that fall I was racing against a number of people who had made the Beijing team and I won and I remember Fred coming out on the porch Fred Schock the director of regatta coming out on the porch of Cambridge Boat Club as I paddled there and cooled down and shouting to me that I won and it just that moment, I remember like my spi- smile was stretched across my entire face. And that was the moment where I thought, you know, maybe I do have it in me. Maybe I, I want this enough to be an Olympian. And I maybe I do have the speed in me to have what it takes to become an elite rower. And that really was the point for me to think that I could make it as an Olympian, an elite rower. And obviously, now the rest is history. But so that pivotal moment in my life, I mean, in terms of returning to rowing, is all credit to Head of the Charles. Uh, since then, so that was my first win in 2008. Gosh, I mean, I'm lucky because it's a home course advantage in terms of knowing the course, but it's also home course advantage in terms of having so much support out there. I mean, my medical school's friends would come out, my high school friends would come out, and knowing that the boathouse is a long way. I mean, I've trained out of the Harvard boathouse. I row for CBC. I've trained out of my high school boathouse. I just, the crowds are incredible. I think everything about the regatta kind of spurs me on to have my best performance and to make my hometown proud. And it's become even more fun, as you said, in these past years with international competition, but also rowing the grade eight with Mm. not against the international competition, but with the international competition. Fred came to me in London and said, we want to put together a men's grade eight. They've done it at the head of the river and we want to do it equitably this year. We want to have a women's grade eight too. And I want to put you in charge of it, which I laughed at because there I was seventh of the Olympics, like barely making the cutoff for top eight, relatively new to the international scene. Didn't really know anyone. I'm like, wait, you're putting me in charge of, meeting all these people and finding eight people to fill this boat. And it definitely wasn't as easy the first year as it has become in um, later years. Because now when you ask someone, they jump at the chance, like, yep, I'll change my plans. Like, I'm there. That first year, I remember 
some countries had regattas they had to be back for and some people had retired and were like, I don't want to pick up an oar anymore and this and that. And we ended up going into the women's double as well to get some of the competitors and on. And I remember the Nod and I were the only ones who were not Olympic medalists, I think, ultimately in that boat, which we were completely overwhelmed and intimidated by um, being in this boat with everyone else who's won an Olympic medal. And it's such an incredible opportunity. I mean, that first year, but every year after to train with the people you play on an elemental level, even though you may not know each other very well and didn't know just by rowing the single or the double and that the nature of that training, there is a level of trust that the person in front of you and behind you will do their best and leave it all on the course. Mm. And even though we are only teammates for a weekend, it really does become a very deep sense of camaraderie and getting to know one each other off the water. Um, some of the women from the grade eight have ultimately become my training partners. I've trained with Sunita in Ireland. I mean, and that was thanks to a conversation after one grade eight must've been in the fall of 2014. And she asked what happens in the winter. And I said, Oh, the Charles freezes. And she said, Oh, well you should come to Ireland. And I was like, Oh, okay. I'll come to Ireland. And <laughs> that January I went to Ireland. <laughs> but I think it's, um, it's such a with, cool. Sorry. And Magdi in Austria. And it's just a number of them. It's, it's, uh, they, it's a bond that is surprisingly unshakable given the brevity of the weekend. Mm. I just feel like you people are you already feel really close to your competitors. You're racing them like at the biggest moments of your life. And yes, you might not even speak to them or you might not have any relationship with them, but you are very close. So just having that one step further of now getting in a boat and racing for a weekend, you kind of break that the little bit of the ice that's maybe separating you and there's already so much history and so much connecting those uh, athletes together. So yeah, I mean, it must be really, really incredible. Yeah, and now when I get to regattas, I mean, of course, when you're on the water, you want to beat each other at an international regatta in the single because that's your job and that's what you yeah. train for. But you also want your competition to have her best race because the faster your competition goes, the faster you're pushing yourself to go. Yeah. And so we're all elevating each other to the best of our abilities which is special in of itself and then once you're off that 2k i mean in the cool down it's just a chat fest and the women's single um in terms of what happened in your heat or what happened last week or how's your family doing and i think the there is a big sense now of community among the women's single which is it makes her going to regattas and really special experience because it's a reunion in addition to a competition. Yeah. So we want to move uh, move to Rio, and I think where we can start is the the weather because you already said that you got a bit of a raw deal at the, the <laughs> London Games, and now going to Rio was like maybe fairer across the course, but ten times worse uh, water. And so just tell us a little bit about your experience in Rio and, and just mainly uh, and, and how you dealt with the, the bad weather. Yeah, so even going prior to even arriving at Rio, I think when I decided to do another quadrennial, I knew that I was doing it for a different reason than going to London. I mean, London was about the experience and being mm. an Olympian and achieving that 
dream since childhood. Even if I wanted to be a figure skater when I was a kid growing up, I mean, that didn't happen. But being a rower is not so bad either. Um, Rio was really about performance and execution. I came into it having medaled at the World Cups leading up to it. And the goal was to be on the podium. And it seemed an achievable goal, um, even though Emma was thrown back into the mix and it was not going to be by any means an easy goal, which Mm -hmm. an Olympic medal never is. So I, fun fact, the first international medal I won in the single was at the World Cup in 2015 in Italy, and it was on Father's Day, which, you know, as a father who's my coach, it's a really, a special coincidence. Uh, anyway, so I won medal the two World Cups I raced in 2015, medaled the World Cup in 2016, and headed into Rio excited about the speed I could show. And even the day of the heat with the weather, I mean, that was the point of this question. I didn't really have any idea how the lake could whip up as quickly as it did. We have bad weather in Boston frequently, but the forecast is a lot more reliable than it appeared to be in Rio. So you know when the bad weather is about to come. And when we launched for the heat that day, it was flat. It was totally flat. The first heats of the men's single had great water. Or first, maybe just the first. But And then as we were warming up, it was getting windier and windier. But the warm-up zone was kind of near the first 500, maybe went to the 750. So I knew the water was getting bad, but I really did not know how bad it was going to get because the water was worse between the 1,000 and the 1,500. And so the first strokes were fine. I mean, it was a rough tailwind, but nothing that I would have really expected to turn into giant rolling whitecaps a few meters down. And then it was, I mean, I was just trying to keep moving forward and not flip. I distinctly remember just like blade in, blade out, like keep moving. It doesn't matter if you're quarter side, like blade in, blade out, keep moving because the boat is more balanced. As long as you keep moving, do not stop because if you stop, you're going to flip. (laughs) And that was how I got down the course. And I think it ended up being one of my closest course um, races in Rio. I think I finished like less than a second ahead of V, which is bizarre given how rough the conditions were and how spread apart a lot of the fields were. And I remember my forearms were shot. <laughs> and I believe it. My mom taught us in high school when you forearms freeze that you can make the alphabet in really big letters and you end up going through every degree of motion with your wrist and it's a great way to loosen up your forearms so I put my oars down on my lap and I'm tracing the alphabet with my hands and if you go back and watch the races the announcers go oh she's doing her victory dance (laughs) celebrating (laughs) I was not celebrating I was glad to be alive and was trying to uncramp my forearms Um, and then I remember just going to our like PTs and they were ready to give us flushes and I was like no I didn't actually use my legs like you don't need to flush my legs but my forearms really need a lot of work yeah (laughs) Because the race was just ridiculous. I mean, it wasn't... Apparently, it was very fun to watch. NBC got great ratings. And I think it's one of the reasons that coastal rowing is going likely to be an Olympic event. Because spectators like watching the craziness. But it's not what we train for. Yeah, I didn't. Um, We don't train for survival rowing. We train to execute fast rowing. Yeah, I didn't enjoy watching your race and I've definitely told the story before on the row show that we were the race after you guys because the men's pair was, was after women's single and like yeah. uh, my crewmate just 
Shawnee just he was like no they're gonna they're gonna cancel the racing <laughs> like because by that stage even the warm-up area was like unroyable and he's yeah. like no they're gonna cancel and i look across and i'm like sean the woman's single is busy racing down the course like we are gonna race and like we couldn't even see your boat like you could just see the athletes yeah. oh, moving no, on top can't. of the There's water a few where like the swells are so big that you can just see me and no hull <laughs> and, and i remember insane. i got the water and i told my dad i was like i need a new boat like that takes on too much water the Philippines did better i you need to find me a Philippi. <laughs> Fortunately, my dad calmed me down and I didn't end up getting a new boat because I had been practicing the Empocker and you do row slightly differently in different boats. But Empocker hadn't built Splash for the X-17s at that point because it was a relatively new mold. And all the Empockers went to Empocker and there they were with the power drills drilling through the bows of all the boats and making custom Splash Guards. But it wasn't something the boats were prepared to have, but it was something we really needed. Yeah, even our Felipe ones, um, they yeah, we, we they would... doubled it up, so they really had a like pretty large splash at the at the bow, and they actually were taking extra ones and like gluing them together to make it like twice as high. Yeah, there was a lot of and there was a lot of DIY, DIY boats yeah. repair and whatnot happening at, at the Olympics. Yeah, and I mean like uh, uh, Kim Brennan yeah. had the two I mean, boats yeah. for the for the weather, so yeah. there was there was a lot of anxiety and planning and pressure all about the the weather at at the real games but you managed to to hold it all together through the week and I thanks mean, to rowing in the boston basin there mm-hmm. we go and i can, and, and I I mean, can credit i can credit the basin for that but yeah i remember there was some there was one day i think that rowing wasn't canceled and sailing was because there was so much wind which is just an absurdity yeah, when you think about it yeah uh, <laughs> And I think we're fortunate that a buoy lane broke, so they could not hold racing yes. yeah. one day. Yeah. And then they realized that, oh, there will still be TV viewership. The spectators will still come. We can actually be a little bit more flexible than we thought. Yeah, we Jake was, try to hold Jake was lucky. I got so lucky that day they canceled racing because I, we, we were in the fall and we had a shock of heat and we got put into the rapid charge. And I remember the rapid charge was the day before the semi and uh, we did the rapid charge and obviously I was absolutely terrified of not making it through. So I committed, we all went in 100%, made it through the rep, but I was shanked afterwards. And I remember waking up the morning of the semi, I hadn't seen the weather and stuff. I was praying, I was literally praying like this, <laughs> please cancel the racing, we cannot race today. I am not going to... I don't know if I can make it through the semi if we race. And we got to the course, it was cancelled. And then the next day, yeah. obviously, it gave us a day of rest, which eliminated our disadvantage. The next day, we raced the semi and we made it through. And I was just like, thank... I know a lot of people, a lot of the lightweights in our team were wrecked because of the, the day cancelled racing. But I was just counting my lucky stars because it worked out really well for us. It actually really did show which boats were natural lightweights and which boats struggled to make weight because yeah, they had to weigh much. in every day in a row. And I think that the boats that didn't have trouble weighing in were the ones that ultimately had successful regattas. Yeah, yeah, I felt um, terrible on the lightweight for, side of things. Yeah, I felt terrible for lightweights. I mean, we had two lightweight doubles on men, men's and women's, and uh, you know they were. It's just like another element that you have to factor into the rowing. And I know yeah. it's, you know, obviously we've, we've got such a strong lightweight rowing tradition in South Africa. And I know it's so hard for them to, you know, with the, the racing like that, it was flipping hard. So I felt terrible for them. But great for me, though. It worked out perfectly. 
Um, well, then you ended up racing your semi and final back to back, right? I know yeah, we raced in single. Yeah, we raced the the semi and final back to back. But you know, for me, it was all is was a question of like as long as everyone is kind of on the same you know uh, same advantage plane like no, no one is racing a day before a day after the recoveries are the same so i was i was fine with fine with that racing back-to-back days so yeah i think that actually played to my advantage a little bit and that endurance is my strength over power and the yeah. closer the races are together the more endurance kind yes. of becomes a component of it definitely yeah. and i do remember thinking unlike the fairness our semis were not even no. Um, and the woman single. No. I Mm-mm. don't know if you guys remember looking at the semis, but our my semi I think had five of six people. We were like, oh, those could be podium contenders. And yeah. the other semi had three. And but they Kimmy and M on the same one. I was like, oh my gosh, they're just like gonna cruise. They're gonna cruise to the A final. They're gonna be all rested for tomorrow. And I was so happy when I got off the water. My dad told me that Emma had raced Kimmy in the semi and that they both had to push hard. I was like, that's the best thing that could have happened. Yeah. So aside from the fact that poor Fee, but her Orlock opened like 10 strokes into the race. And so then it was like, Oh, I don't have to beat five people anymore. I only have to beat four people, <laughs> which is a terrible way to advance. But at that point you take anything you can get. You take everything. In a terrible yeah, way. For sure. So talk us through that final because it was for you it was quite a close race especially that first half of the race and then that uh, the second half of the race the the water's uh, pretty good there and, and you start to to take your your advantage and and you start to to move comfortably into the silver medal position I mean that must have just been such an awesome race did that was that kind of your race plan or uh, how did the the things go as planned Yeah you know leading up to Rio I think I'd finally figured out how to race in that if you look at the beginning of my rowing career i was so slow off the line internationally like i was consistently a six and we're talking open water back at the 500 and in the rio quad thanks to weightlifting i think mostly i had begun to start with the field i was never the first to the 500 but wasn't losing contact as often as before and then at the World Cup in 2016, I, maybe for the first time in international career, executed a good sprint. Carling was right behind me, and as we know, Carling has a mean last 500. And I could see her coming up in the lane to my port and just said, I'm not going to let her pass me. And it pushed me to have probably the best sprint of my life in that race. Um, that race. And so... I went into Rio knowing that I could start better and also could have a sprint. And the base speed had always been my relative strength. So I knew that I could put the pieces together. It doesn't mean I wasn't nervous. I barely ate dinner the night before. Thanks to Sunita, who she and her coach Don had dinner with me and my dad. And she was kind of just like force feeding me calories in the dining hall. And almost vomited on the bus ride to the course because it's starting and stopping and it's an hour and it's painful and felt just a little bit of a wreck and then I got an email from one of the master's guys that I had trained with for two quads and it simply said you have made everyone so proud by getting it to this point this race is for you like there is nothing hanging on this except for that you for you to have fun and it made me think, and when I talk to junior rowers, I always say the most important thing is not what number you place, but if you have executed your best performance. And at that moment, I thought, you know, 
I am probably not going to win this race. Kimmy is very likely going to win this race. And I am pretty sure that I can beat Janine and Magdi. And other than that, it's me and Emma and Jingli. And I can honestly say that if I go out there and have my best race, I will be happy with a second, third, or fourth. And that's how I went to the line. I was like, a second, third, or fourth, as long as I lay down my best race, like, I will be very proud of everything I've done. And at that point, I was so excited to race. I got to the line just ready to go, um, full of excitement at what I could potentially do. And I remember going off a line and looking around the 500, and Kimmy was, of course, like miles gone. I couldn't even turn my head far enough to see her. But I was with everyone else. And for me, that is huge. So for me to be even with all those fast starters, like Magdi, was a big step. So I said, oh, if I'm with everyone at the 500, like, this is, this is going well. And I remember getting to the 1,000 and thinking, this doesn't hurt. Like, it's supposed to hurt by now. Like, the lactate usually is built up by now. Like, I'm feeling great. And it was actually even at the 1,000 that I thought, if this doesn't hurt, I know that I'm going to be on that podium. Mm. And it, from there, it's just a blur. Jingli had beaten me in the semifinal. She had made a move around the 1500. And so I made a move around 1400 and was like, you're not touching me this time. And she and Emma were side by side. And I know there's something about having someone next to you in that lane, like Carling was at the World Cup a few months prior, that helps push you, just that mm. proximity. And Kimmy was between us. And I knew that that proximity would help them. And so going into the last 500, my mentality was you need to be far enough ahead that they're dueling it out will not pass you. Because that is definitely a potential that not only will one of them pass you, but both of them are going to pass you because they're dueling it out side by side. And so I gave it my all in that last 500, staying ahead of that dueling battle. And yeah. I mean, there to execute a race that I am extremely proud of and to get that second, which was the highest I could have imagined achieving in terms of a numerical value, to achieve both of those. I mean, there's it. Everyone's asked me like, "What's it like to be on the podium? Mm-hmm. How do you describe it?" And it's so hard to put into words because it really is indescribable that feeling of uh, completion in a way. I mean, all that hard work that goes into that one race and the pride in executing and the joy in doing something you love and the support of friends and family. I mean, it's, it really is. I mean, there's nothing better. It's Yeah. yeah. It's so cool. Really and to and to do it with like I mean that was it's a race. It's like you can see you take it from everyone, like uh, put yourself in the silver medal position in that through the through the middle of the race, the third quarter, and then you see Emma and uh, and coming back and, and the the race is really taking off and you just burying it to, to stay ahead of them. It's so awesome. Yeah. It's such a cool race. And I mean rowing is that, a lot of mental. There's <laughs> yeah. a lot of a lot. huge a lot amount of mental. Of mental. And but it's so cool to watch and it's so cool to hear you speak about it and like that's your that's the race. Like in your head you planned this race, 
this is the number you thought you could get and now you've you've managed to execute it it's really really awesome and yeah. just yeah it's so fulfilling i think as well to to come away with something that yeah. as we spoke about right at the beginning of the of the chat is like uh you only have that one day you ha- you have to put it down you have to get it right on the mm. day in the moment and then to actually do it is like surprising and just so cool yeah 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 it's yeah i have no words for it i wish i could but i just i always tell people i hope that everyone feels as special at some point in their life as i did standing on that podium because there aren't words for it well i mean you said it was you were going there for for performance and uh, i that was definitely a performance and incredibly well executed (laughs) Um, and so, Jeffy, we're gonna we're gonna move into the the, the end of our interview. And um, I know you've listened to Kim's episode, so you know you you know our quick fire questions. They they are. Six oh, you're not gonna qu- ask about this quad? I'm still rolling. No, we're getting, oh no, we're getting there. We're getting there. We're gonna do it. We're gonna do it afterwards. But we wanted to we wanted to get into the the quick fire questions. There's six questions that we ask we ask uh, all our all our interviews on the show. And we always get some amazing answers. So the first, the first question is, um, if you could race any boat class at the Olympic Games, which would it be? You know, I laughed when I heard this on the first one that I listened to, and then I kind of gritted my teeth when I heard it on the second one and realized the questions didn't change, because <laughs> this is basically a question that everyone's been asking me for the last two years in terms of what boat class are you yeah. going to go for in Tokyo? And... I still don't have a great answer for that. It is something that I've had, I've been mulling over for two years and something that I'll probably mull over for a few more months. So my answer in terms of skipping the difficulty of this question is going to be, I'm going to race in the Olympics in the quad with the people that I choose in the next question. Uh, that's <laughs> that's actually, my goal. That's, that's there a, we go. Well, well, put, uh, well put answer. Okay, well, uh, then we can go straight into the next question. Who are the three people... <laughs> you're going to race in uh, in Tokyo with? <laughs> I have had the advantage of racing in a double with all the people that I've gone to train with. So I've done a little bit of selection for this quad, you could say. <laughs> um, and I have had some really good double rows with some of my international competitors. And so um, I'm going to put Sunita and Carling and Magdi in my quad with a shout out to Lisa, who I've also rode a double with, and it's pretty good. She'll be our spare. And Kimmy, who is my stern pair at the grade eight. She's on that. She's in the spare list too. And Emma. So, you know, we got a good backup team. I could field an eight if you want. Yeah, I can. We could see that. Well, you know what? I'm actually just talking about it. You know, it would be, it would be incredible in, I don't know how, but to actually see a quad like that come down the track. And it, it just talking about this question, it highlights how awesome it is to have the the great eights at the head of the charts because it, it is amazing to see these people getting into a boat together and actually rowing together for once and not being restricted by their nationality um it's pretty special it would be awesome to race that quad at something and we have talked about potentially racing the quad at henley mm, well, oh, that would be cool that would be awesome um It'd be really fun so then the next one is what is your favorite rowing race that you find yourself watching over and over again yeah, I think the one that I have watched the most is the 2014 World's Final and the women's single um, between Emma and Kimmy. And mostly because it helps me 
to visualize how I want to row when I watch people rowing the style that I aspire to. And I think that Emma rowed very well in that 2014 final in Amsterdam in some choppy conditions. And that was the style I aspired to row like leading up to Rio. And one of the biggest compliments I ever got was my dad and Gary were talking Emma's coach through Rio in Rio and during one of the practice days. And neither of them could tell me or Emma apart when we were rowing by because the coaches were far enough from the lanes that, and we rowed similarly enough that occasionally they'd be like, Oh, is that Emma? No, it's Jevy. Oh, is that Jevy? No, it's Emma. And that was an insane compliment because that's what I had tried to do after watching this race over and over and over was to row like Emma. Uh, more recently, I've watched the 2018 women's single final a lot too. Cause I think Sunita rode excellently mm. in that event and trying to, I mean, looking up to that and trying to row like Zanita. Yeah, definitely. And I think those two races are oftentimes I find myself, you know, they, they, there's certain moments in time where you watch a race and you see someone's performance and their technical ability and just the, the approach to racing. And you look at that and you go, that was, that was a special moment. And I think the, both those races you spoke about now, you know, Emma racing 2014 and Zanita racing 2018, those would definitely go down on, on moments in time where, the the man in the race was executed the technical ability of the rowers that you're speaking of are really special and it's it's something that you know you can you can look at and learn so much from um yeah. and i try yeah. i try to learn from it mm. someday so, i'll get there yeah. <laughs> so the next one Maybe. is if you were in charge at world rowing and you could uh, make any changes that you wanted uh, what change would you make first Gosh, um, so there are two slightly different things I've thought about when I've listened to this question. I think one is something that we've been working on more in the States is increasing the diversity within rowing. I think rowing is still pretty homogenous in terms of the people who do it being relatively white and relatively male. And I think the Olympics going equally to male and female events hopefully will help. But if we could get closer to 50-50 at a world championships with more racial diversity um not only among the countries but also bringing in more countries internationally i think that would be just a huge boon to our sport i think it would help the sport in general and just lift everyone up um and the other one is totally a non-sequitur um which is something my dad and i have talked about and that is how to increase the popularity and watchability of rowing and one of the things i've thought about is that it really is individuals who catch the social media and like the popular attention in terms of being televised and broadcast. If you think about athletes who are notable, they do individual sports frequently, at least in the States. So you have Michael Phelps who swims individually and you have Mm -hmm. the gymnasts who perform individually. And one of the things that increases the popularity of the sport is being able to identify these individuals within the sport And it's hard in rowing because you have an eight and all eight people get the same credit and they should get the same credit. And I think one way to increase the um, viewability, I don't know if that's a word, but let's pretend it's a word, of the sport would be to go to a Pan Am-like format and have the eight be comprised of people who row the smaller boats. Mm. Mm. So everyone in the eight... So they're allowed two spares at Pan Ams, which is fine. So at least six members of the eight will have been doubling up 
And it's up to the country where to choose them from, the pair, the quad, yeah. the single, the double. But I think that if athletes race in a small boat and an eight, it would lend to being able to identify with individual people because you could kind of separate them out a little bit and their names and faces would appear more often. There'd be more recognition. Yeah. And people would have the opportunity to earn two medals. And as silly as it is, at least in America, it's all about the number of medals. And yeah. in rowing, you can only earn one medal. Or if yeah. you're Kimmy Crow and superhuman, you can earn two. Two, But yes. most normal people <laughs> yeah. can only earn one. And I think if you had the eight as a double-up event and you could have people who could earn two, the potential to earn two medals, I think that it yeah. would help ratings. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I think if you, if you had potential to earn more medals, I think that would also increase the kind of appeal of our sport but i think i think your the doubling up i still think it doesn't really give i think we need more access to the athletes there's not enough face time we're not because you know even if you had an eight if you had a quick interview with the the gold medal eight at the end of the race they the team is going to put forward one or two people to talk that are going to have the ability and then you're going to build that kind of relationship or that you know the hype about certain individuals with these great stories or you know great personalities and i mean we spoke about it in the in the one uh, the european mm. hype train that we did where you know we're, we're at the after the games with the uh, donovan brothers we had like the massive, biggest yeah. uh hype about athletes that our sports probably ever had and then yeah. the world rowing didn't really like capitalize yeah. on it they didn't really do anything with it yeah. but another thing on your on your other point was that uh, talking about the equality between the the guys and the girls, and it's also uh, I think rowing is so special where the girls and guys racing is like I want to watch. I really want to watch both. I want to. I'm invested in watching both. The racing is is so good both ways. It's like there's it, there, there's really good content, and it's just about capitalizing and and moving forward with it because it's it's right there. It's not like they need to change anything. They need to do like it's it's so cool. Yeah. I think also, I mean, the the, the, the racial diversity, you, it is, the rowing is heavily populated by, you know, white athletes. I think racial diversity is really important. And, uh, you know, in South Africa, there's a lot of work going into transforming and getting, you know, getting way more diversity in, involved in the sport. And it's really, it's really tough because that is a, it's a, it's a tough uh, problem to tackle because there's so many different, you know, aspects and issues you have to go with that. And it's not easy to go through. So, those, I mean, those, all those issues are really important. I think, you know, there's a lot of what's nice about talking about this question. There's so much innovation and there's so much space for improvements and change, which is, it's a good problem to have in a way. Um, so going to the next, next question, this is, this is the, you know, everyone wants to know about this. And I know you, you say that you, you more of an endurance athlete and we can talk about that. But what is, what is your two kilometer PB on the ergometer? Yeah, and I listened to all Emmy and Kimmy and Cena. They're like, oh, it's terrible, it's terrible. Guys, <laughs> you're really not making me look good. Yeah. <laughs> Ergs don't float. That's all I got to say. Um, my PB on the Erg is 645 flat. Yeah. So I have room for improvement. I am very aware. Yeah, and uh, and what's your... I know you I read reading up somewhere, you said that your, your 6K, I think, is, is, is uh, equivalent, equivalently better. What's your 6K oh, yeah. PB? Oh gosh, I wouldn't be able to tell you the total time. I don't. Mm, would I? It's a one forty six point three. So it's 
know. I don't know. It's in the 21 teens. Mm. Well, yeah, we'll definitely. I mean, also the 6K is a bit. Um, it's we we do everything on the 5K, so that's our our benchmark for the longer tests. But you know, I mean, the crazy thing about this is like speaking to all all the different athletes. I think a lot of the athletes that we speak about at an elite level, everyone actually is incredibly fast on the ergo. I mean. You know, 6.45, that's still an exceptionally fast time on the Ugo, even though there are people like Kim, who's a genetic, you know, god when it comes to something like this. But well, and like does... the whole women's training center in Princeton, who goes up yes. 6.40. <laughs> well, I mean, it just goes to show, like, you know, all the, the other elements that go into, you know, rowing and making a boat go fast. Um, it's not always about the power. Power makes a huge difference, though. But it, it's it's really interesting because it it opens up the conversation about you know how do you make a boat go faster, and it just you know it reminds me a bit about when we spoke to Drew Ginn. Again, Drew Ginn's ergo time compared to a lot of the other top performers on the men's side wasn't as impressive. But then you look at Drew Ginn's results, and he's one of the greatest rowers on the men's side. And speaking to him, he really gets into. You know, um, he's famous for asking the question, well, how, how do you make the boat go faster? So, you know, it really, really does uh, show. I'll say that my PR also was set last winter. So, you know, there is improvement. So hopefully we'll see <laughs> oh, what happens awesome. in the next yeah, few that's, months. That's the most important that's thing. That's awesome. So, so you just try to in- chop it away slowly. Yeah, mm. that's all you can do. Uh, the battle with your yourself on the Ugoi. So the, the last of the quick fire questions is if you could choose if you had to choose a different sport to go to the Olympics in, uh, which sport would you choose? Does this assume that I could be magically good at whatever yeah. sport yeah. I choose? Yeah. You can well, take you it could, any approach. Yeah, any you approach. could take it anyway. Okay. Well, if I could be magically good at any sport, I would choose tennis. I think that it has the unique strength slash power and endurance and mental sides that rowing kind of incorporates as well. Um, and you can make a earning actually playing yes, it, which is exceptional. So like I could have it as my job and be a tennis player, which it's novel to a rower. Oh, but are you saying that if you could play tennis, then you wouldn't have studied to be a doctor? <laughs> it's possible that I would not have, but I'd like to think that I would have played tennis and then become a doctor and I wouldn't be pulling out of my savings account at the yeah. moment. Yeah. Well, I mean, tennis is, is one of those sports. I mean, just from the bit I've played, because we, we, you know, we, my family enjoys playing tennis quite a lot, so I've played a bit. But the the composure, I feel like the mind composure you need, like you can't, as soon as you get let get one shot, gets you you toast. The rest of the your 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 game is is wrecked, and that's something I admire the most about tennis because I feel like your mental composure in tennis has to be exceptional and over such a long period of time. Yeah, super long. Yeah. I mean, that's where sports psychology really became a thing. I don't know if you guys have read The Inner Game of Tennis, but I think it was the first sports psychology book ever published, and it applies to rowing, too. And I think my strength as a rower is one of the strengths Mm. is the mental side of things. So I like to think that I don't have the eye-hand coordination, hand-eye coordination to play tennis, but the mental side, maybe I could pull off. That's awesome. So I know Jake said that was the inter- end of our interview, but we definitely need to touch on yes. Tokyo and you coming and committing to, to another Olympics and then having the Olympics postponed. Uh, I think that's the first thing we want to ask is like, how have you dealt with uh, 2020? Yeah, so it, my dad likes to think it would have been a beautiful, happy ending to the fairy tale story if I had stopped after Rio because I 
won a medal, everything was getting faster. And then I went on to become a doctor and practice as a physician, which was always the goal. And I was just happily ever after would have been the end. Um, of course, I remember sitting on the plane back from Rio and knowing that the more I rode, the more I fell in love with rowing and I wasn't done with it. And at that point, I didn't know whether I wasn't done with it in general and would continue rowing as a master's or whether I wasn't done with it at the elite level and I would pursue another Olympics. And I loved medicine. I practiced emergency medicine for 14 months and I had to make a decision about Tokyo about six months in. And at first I was sure that I was not doing it because emergency gives you the adrenaline. It gives you the balance. It gave me the challenge. And it's also a very close knit group of 13 residents. And I didn't want to let the program down by deserting them really. And I told two people that I was done rowing and I was retiring. I told, well, I told three. I told my parents. I told Liz O'Leary, who's the coach at Weld, which is the boathouse I rowed out of. And I told Mary Jones, who's been in the U.S. team as a lightweight woman. And Mary said to me, you know, Jebby, you seem really sad about this. Maybe you should just try telling someone that you're going to go for Tokyo and see what your reaction is. Not what their reaction is, but like see inside how you feel when you tell someone that you're going to go for it again. And so I called up one of my best friends from college and told her that I was going to go for Tokyo and immediately got butterflies at the thought of sitting on the start line again and going for that goal again. And I knew that it was something that I just wasn't done with and I wasn't ready to retire. So I went back to Liz and said, actually, I changed my mind. I'm <laughs> going to go for another Olympics. And I convinced my dad to coach me for another set of years. And I convinced my residency program. Um, they weren't super happy at first because it is a close-knit group of 13 people, but amazingly, there was one transfer student in the entire country who was eligible to come in as a second year, and there were about 10 programs that were eyeing him and trying to persuade him to join their program, and he picked my program at the BI, so I didn't desert them. They went from 13 to 13, and they're going to welcome me back next August, so I'm ready. I'm excited to start again when that does happen, but I was able to focus on rowing for what was going to be two is now three years. Mm. Um, of course, it's not a happy ending. Like I came back, was like the, the single's my thing. I'm going to go race a single. And of course, Kara's really fast and she's come up through the system as I've taken my time in medicine. And I raced her at trials in March, whatever month it was, the spring of 2019. And she won. I mean, I can't say that I am super proud of the race I produced on that day. But even if I had produced a race I was proud of, she won me. She won by a big enough margin that I'm not sure I would have beaten her. She is fast, as we all know. She's now a medalist at the World Championship in the single. And I was devastated because that had been my goal, to come back and continue to race the single. But adapt or die was something that I learned very quickly in the next Different, week. Yeah. And I knew that I had been gaining speed and that it would be a shame not to race because I could contribute to the U.S. team in some way, shape, or form, even if it's not in the single. And Cicely Madden, who had been my training partner that spring, um, really rose to the occasion. I turned to her on the car ride home, and I said, hey, you want to hop in a double? And so we hopped in a double, and a month later won double trials. And I got to race a new Bocas. And I think for me, it actually was a really great experience and very positive to have something new and different because it was a new challenge, and there were plenty of things to learn. Um, and 
it went pretty well until maybe the last 500 of our last race <laughs> when things fell apart a yeah, little bit it was and it a showed tough, tough race our inexperience rowing together i think that's where the longer you row with someone the more it helps um when you have a tight finish like that and when you're tired at the end of a regatta and i think i mean it says his first world and to be in a race like that in your first world championship to come in in the pre-olympic year with qualification it's a challenge yeah, yeah. Def- so definitely. um room for improvement uh sis and i have continued to train together we actually have a group of five heavyweight women now and um when the postponement came around i wasn't sure what to do it did take me a while because i had been very excited to start residency again in august 2020 like i had a start date august 15th 2020 yeah. was when i was going to go back to medicine and i'm now 35 i mean i have a few more aches and pains i have to stretch for a lot longer and go to the chiropractor more and my chiropractor was actually one of the first people i asked he's amazing he works with our football team the new england patriots and our baseball team and the elite row- runners in the area in addition to the rowers so he knows what he's doing and i said tj like can i survive another year of training <laughs> and he honestly said yes and that was a big boost of confidence in terms of the thought that maybe i can do one more year uh, but as you know, as we've talked about, I've done this alternating between making medicine a priority and making rowing a priority. And I've never rowed more than two years in a row full time because I've always had the medicine in there. So it's been two years rowing, two years medicine, two years rowing, two years medicine. And the third year rowing was really intimidating. And I talked to Megan Musnicki, who was one of the people I talked about. And she said, Jeb, that's exciting. Like mm-hmm. you keep getting faster in these two year cycles. Like how much faster you can get in a three year cycle. And I think that was a helpful way to look at it, to kind of flip the coin on its head and say, you know, this might not be an impediment, but it might actually be a boost to me. So in my residency, of course, I called them and said, you know, I haven't gotten the schedule. Like, I haven't made up my mind. Do you need, like, my stuff for next year? And they said, oh, we assumed you were taking a year off. Like, we know your training's going well. We're planning on you for returning in the summer of 2021. Uh, so they made it easy on that front. <laughs> and yeah, we, the postponement, yeah, it was a rough time. I think the mental hurdles are some of the biggest hurdles because going from racing once a year, which is already not a lot. I mean, we train a whole year to race for however many minutes, 28 minutes. Um, maybe you race a world cup. So 56 minutes, let's say, who knows, but you don't race a lot of minutes given the number of minutes you train. And so to double the training time compared to racing time is a lot to ask of any athlete. And my dad and I had a lot of conversations about how best to adapt. And we actually did cut down on our volume a lot, um, through August because we knew that the Olympic year would be starting again in September. And we really wanted to be excited both physically and mentally come September 1st, 2020. And in order to do that, we really cut back and we did have a fun regatta amongst our squad and a few other local clubs in August, the social distanced regatta, socially distanced regatta, also known as the Corona cup with a W in there, (laughs) Corona. And it was really fun to race 2k open rate and to get on the line side by side. And I think after just the drag of the pandemic and quarantine and living that life and nothing is optimal. I think to just get the thrill of being on the start line again and to race side by side and to remember, this is why I do it. I do it to have my best race. 
it doesn't matter if it's in Boston. It doesn't matter if it's at, in Tokyo. Like I am here to execute and to show what I train for. Um, that week really reminded me why I do what I do and why I love it. And so having that regard in there was really a great idea of coach dad to keep us excited for another Olympic year. And now we're back to fall training. Um, we didn't have head of the Charles, but there's a bunch of scrimmages, the head of the Kevins, normally three. And this year we had five, but it's on the head of the Charles course, all singles, all local people. And honestly, the goal is always to get faster and to have my best performance and it helps to have good competition, as we said. I mean, good competition forces you to elevate your game. At the same time, I'm always putting the pressure on myself to improve. And I have a really fast group to train with right now. And so the competition level is decently high. Mm. So having those scrimmages kept things fun. I mean, it was something to race this fall to keep things lively. Yeah. And so obviously everything's not perfect. We're able to row singles, which is fabulous. Um, some things have gone out the window like weightlifting we're now weightlifting in Cicely's parents garage and it's you kind of feel like like, wait we're training for the Olympics and we're lifting out of a garage with weights that we like cobble together from our family and friends it seems crazy (laughs) at the same time we're able to get everything done that we need to get done Mm. like we have enough weight we have all the equipment we need and can any of us do the same exercise at the same time no because we have one of everything (laughs) so it takes a little bit longer but we all can do it. And I think that is, we're prioritizing training and kind of making it happen. Yeah. It's a little bit more amateur than elite this year. No, I, I, I mean, it's, I mean, even for us, it's been a, it's been a huge shift and you know what, it's, it's just about getting, getting the work done. And, you know, just for, for me, the biggest thing was just trying to find back uh, another, get back into some sort of routine, the breakup of the routine and, and going overseas and racing, that was a huge hit on me. I, I was look forward to every single time we get to tour overseas and suddenly you've gone from pre, you know, you had to train your, your pre-competition uh, camp, Olympics, you know, go home, Olympics canceled. Now you have like this uncertainty of training and lockdown. So it's it's definitely good to get back into routine, I, I must say. I agree. It's good to have that goal and to have a reminder of, that you're doing something you love. I mean, yeah. I remind, I'm very lucky. And that's what I told myself a lot. I mean, on hard or days in the winter, especially after Rio, when I've chosen to do this thing again, like this is a choice. I could be in residency right now. And I have chosen to do this because I love doing it. And I don't have to be here. Like this is entirely my choice. And so I'm going to make the most of it and enjoy it. Even if it's a terrible erg and really ugly and uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> it's so- something that, I'm going to make the most of. Hmm. So you say you haven't decided or you haven't uh, set in stone what, you, what you're going to race next year? No. Okay. No. Uh, Rise of Now, the single trials are about six weeks before the double trials. Okay. So um, there's a possibility to race. I mean, I think what I know is that I would like to at least race trials in the single. And although... The SDR helped. Before the SDR, I needed another race in the single because I gained so much speed training in the 2019-2020 year. I wanted just a better execution and to prove that I could go faster down the 2K track. And the SDR did prove that. And now I'm a little bit more at peace with that is a great race in the single and I can end with that if the case may be. But it would be great to, I mean, who knows? Race both? Who knows? 
not race both of the Olympics. I'm not as crazy as Cam, but <laughs> race both trials. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I haven't decided. And right now we're doing some training in singles and some in doubles, and it's fun to mix it up. Yeah, I think the what's awesome was seeing you uh, have a comeback in 2019, but you and the women's double, you guys were really, really quick in a super competitive field. And it's actually, it's a, it's a, it's a awesome to see, you know, you're slotting in there. And I know you guys, you know, you, you got, were disappointed with the fifth finished world champs, but it wasn't like you were out the race. It was, you were out of the pack. Out the oh, no, blocks. it was 0.01 second from four. Exactly. It was ridiculously <laughs> close. And... Um, the the race at Poland was against a, 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 a I think it was almost a full field in the women's double was you know that silver medal was a really well raced silver medal so even the women's double is you guys have got amazing speed so I mean it's actually awesome you the prospects at the moment are really good to to look at and you know with the women's single car is so fast that if you you know if you win it in the, in the women's single in the US that already puts you in such a good spot for international racing so I think it's you know, no matter how you look at it, it's really, really good stuff uh, for the future. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, you're. That's totally right. I'm. In a, <laughs> I'm lucky. I'm in a good spot. And Sicily keeps getting faster. And we talked about how much speed I felt like I gained leading up to the London quadrennial. I mean, Sicily is that age now. She's 26, yeah. and I think it's an age when the training full time. You just your learning curve is really steep, and she keeps getting faster. And I'm, you know, just doing what I can to hold her off, but. <laughs> any speed that she gains helps the double well i mean yeah we look forward to to seeing what what you end up in and uh and look forward to to seeing you you come down the track and i think that's a that's a wrap for for yeah. our episode so just yeah, hopefully huge... i see you guys there hopefully your training is going well too yeah no our training is uh, it's actually returning to a uh, bit more normal than usual so it's really we're training in pairs again and we are actually getting into a gym together um in certain obviously there are a lot of precautions in place and there are COVID measures in place um but it's definitely returning back to some sort of normal training which is which is a really really amazing and um really good so hopefully this this stays forward and we don't return back to lockdown sure. level five again yeah fingers crossed yeah fingers yeah. crossed Thanks, Jervy. Thanks so much for giving us a huge chunk of your time you, and sharing sharing your story and your journey. It's always special to to chat to fellow rowers. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Cool, guys. So that's a wrap for uh, Geneva Stone, Jervy Stone, and what an awesome episode that was. How epic uh, all of the points were, and obviously the quick fire questions at the end just. Uh, so so epic I love listening to those things and, and hearing everyone's different perspective Jake what were the, the big takeaways for you well I think number one I think if anyone out there uh, wants motivation for being able to tackle you know multiple pursuits in life I think uh, Geneva Stone is is the one person you must really listen to I think the only other athlete that has managed to really dedicate ourselves to two incredibly demanding pursuits in life or maybe Kim Brennan hearing her talk about studying for law but you know Jevy is an absolute beast and her her form in Rio was you know you can just see those two years that she took off to focus on rowing made the biggest difference and I cannot wait to see what uh, she can she can do next year yeah, and I think one of the, the big takeaways for me was uh, listening to her chat about uh, training with her dad and how kind of together they have made their, their way forward and, you know, like learned 
how to be, and you know, it's such a special thing in the single when you're by yourself already, and now you're developing this very special relationship and uh, coaching style over uh, with your with your own dad is really cool. I thought that was uh, really awesome. And yeah, I'm sure there's so much more, guys. So let us know what you think of the, the episode. Let us know uh, who you want to hear next. And yeah, I hope you guys are enjoying your December time and you're getting some time away from the team and time away from uh, and time with your families. And yeah, I hope you guys are enjoying it, training hard. And we hope to, to see a lot of you guys coming up to, to next year's racing. Yeah, of course, guys. And, and don't forget to go support the show. Find follow us on social media. Instagram is our, our main form of communication. And then you can also go support us on PayPal. And besides that, have a hop, happy holiday season. Definitely. Cool, Jake. And until next time, we're out. <laughs>